Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, Justice Story fans. It's me, Lane Lloyd. Who am I? Why, I'm the writer and narrator for the audio drama podcast Sable. You should check me out if you like creepy tales with a science fiction twist. This story that you're about to hear is one that terrified me as a child and, to this day, still scares me. Uh, To the point where, if I'm by myself in the house, I still leave most of the lights on. (laughs) And it's funny because I I don't really know why this story, as opposed to so many others, grabbed me. Because I I was never a babysitter, but I think I think it has something with our innate sort of feeling that the home that we have, the the thing that we pay for, the the walls and the doors that are supposed to protect us, we feel a certain sort of peace and serenity, and when something whatever that might be gets thrown into the cog of of this machine. There's just something innately creepy about it. Home is supposed to be the one place where you feel safe. And most of the time you'd like to think being in someone else's home would still have that sort of safety net, if you will. But as you can, as you're about to hear, that's not always the case. And if you, if somehow you haven't figured out what the story is yet, uh, let me give you another hint. It deals with a babysitter, a phone call, and someone who isn't that far away from her. Hey, did did she tell you? C- come on, she didn't tell you? Okay, alright. This had to be the freakiest thing she has ever told me. So this babysitter, right? She's in a house that's in the middle of nowhere. Just in the middle of nowhere. And everything's going fine until... She gets a call from this weird guy, and he's he's being real creepy, so she hangs up. Then he keeps calling, and, and each time he calls, he gets weirder and weirder until eventually she calls the cops on him, dude. And and here's where it gets really scary, though, because the cops are trying to triangulate where this phone call's coming from, so they keep they keep telling her, like, hey, if he calls again, stay on the line with him so we can figure out where he's he's calling. So he he calls again, of course. And she's just stalling and, and, and getting really, really scared. And then the cops tell her, the, the, okay, this is where it gets really, they tell her that he's in the house with her and, and that he's upstairs in the room with the kids. Nuts, right? It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A lore. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Don't talk, just listen. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell. 
over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. You want to take a second to thank all of our listeners. We are so happy to have you with us. Remember that you can reach out to us on Twitter at JustAStoryPod or at our email address, JustAStoryPod at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling very talkative and you just have some things on your chest you want to say, you can call the Just A Story hotline. And the number for that is 512-222-3375. Can't wait to hear about your local urban legends, things that may not be... As classic as this week's episode, things that maybe are just around from around where you are. Yeah, the story about the creepy old house on the hill and the guy that lived there. We'd love to hear that story. But speaking of this week's story, Ooh. it is the most classic of classic urban legends. Without a doubt. It's at least in like the top 10 for sure. Oh yeah, if you Googled like urban legend list. <laughs> this is going to come up. So what are we talking about? We are talking about the caller upstairs. Oh no, is this the babysitter story? Yes. I haven't done any research. I don't know these things. I just found out, folks. Oh good. I may have known. I may have already known. We may have been asking that question for your benefit. Just saying. So, like you said, this is a classic. It's the story about a young girl who goes out into the world to make $5 an hour as a babysitter (laughs) to go buy ice creams and things. And she is home alone with the children and starts receiving threatening phone calls where the man on the other end of the line says things like, have you checked the children? (laughs) Yes. And then there's a sinister laugh. Like heavy breathing. That seems to be a staple in most creepy phone calls. So at first, because she's a teenage girl, she's like, stop it. (laughs) And hangs up. But then... After he calls several more times, she does relent and start to get very anxious. And she decides that the responsible thing to do is use those numbers that the parents have written down for her. Anyone who's ever left the house with a babysitter in charge has scrawled the number for the police, their cell phones, and whatever else. And so in one of these rare cases, she actually uses the numbers on the pad and calls the police. And they tell her, okay, we're going to trace the next call that comes in. And she's like, good plan, coppers. And then the guy calls back. And then after he hangs up, the police call her back. And they say, you're never going to believe this. You need to get out now. The call is coming from inside the house. Holy moly. Which, like, really? That'd be fucking scary. (laughs) No, really, that is a terrifying idea. Yeah, but this story has been told since the 60s. All right, that's kind of when it was first recorded and traced, and it's been recorded by all of the folklorists since then. And there are many, 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 many variations to it. Right. Some that are extremely entertaining. Yes. I'm going to let you take the first couple, because I like the one closer to the end on our list. So sometimes the number of children varies. Mm-hmm. So you like one, two, or three. Usually it's a few. Uh-huh. Because a lot of times the caller calls each time after he kills one of the children. That's horrible. I didn't make this up. This is the collective consciousness. Y'all stop. Get a day job, y'all. You're part of it. No, I'm not. You're perpetuating it. I'm just going to sit over here and read about murder. Sometimes he gives a time he'll kill the children and when he'll come for her. She's like at 1030. For some reason, it's usually 1030. That's curfew. Oh, is it? 
maybe? Yeah, yeah like I, I bet that's what it is. Yeah. Or sometimes it's a prank by the kids. Which I love. I love those badass kids. Like, I think they're hilarious. <laughs> the kids are going to do this shit to you. They're not going to do it to me. They're going to do it to their babysitters, in which case I will giggle relentlessly after the, after she leaves in a huff. And we, we will compensate her handsomely. Oh, and I love that there's, like, a sequel to this urban legend. Like, that's got to be pretty rare, right? I also noticed that, so this movie was adapted. It's been, the idea's been in movies and TV shows and everything. But in the 70s into the movie, When a Stranger Calls, Mm -hmm. which I've seen. But there's actually a sequel to it, which I did not know existed beforehand. Right. Called When a Stranger Calls Again. It's not When a Stranger Calls Back. Like, (laughs) I don't know. When a stranger gets the busy signal and keeps calling. When a stranger is foiled by caller ID. But okay, so in the sequel to this urban legend, uh, the babysitter is out with her husband years later when she's come into her own and has her own children. And for some reason was not so scarred by this experience that she will leave her children with a babysitter. Yeah. And so they're out and a, a maitre d' comes over and taps them on the shoulder and says, excuse me, would you like some Grey Poupon? And they said, no. And he says, well, well, you must take this call instead. And so she takes call and she immediately realizes after the babysitter describes her predicament that it's the same man who terrorized her years earlier. No. Yes. Did not see that coming. Great sequel. A sequel to an urban legend. That's not every day. My favorite is the psychotic family variation. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. I like this one because it just shows you, they're like, you think that's dark? You think that's scary? Let's make them into Chainsaw Massacre crazy. So in this version, the guy kills the babysitter, and then he goes in to get the kids, and the kids see him, and they run up and hug him. Why do they hug him, Jacob? Because they know him. Because he's their brother. Oh, no. And the parents return to greet him. And they're like, we're so glad you're back from the bad place. Did you like the present we got you? It's so messed up. It's so messed up. It's like, I feel like that it takes it to like a gothic horror level at that point. Someone in the South did that. Oh, absolutely. That's got to be the Southern variation. Like, There's no way it's not now that I think on it. It's the Southern gothic. And there's one other one that's interesting. And it is that it's like a single parent that leaves the kids. Uh-huh. And the person that comes is like their dad or whatever, who's been like court ordered not to see them. So is he just getting rid of the babysitter so he can kidnap the children? Yeah, or something he... like that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And that's probably way too close to fact a lot of time. Like not actually killing, but yeah. like. That's like you could look that up and find 50 stories like that. Yeah, but we went a different way with it. We did. We did. We did. Like I said, this story's been told since the 60s, at least. So the dawn of time. That's a long time ago. It's longer than I've been alive. But the thing about this story is it kind of reminded me of The Hook when Mm -hmm. we got into it. Because not every day does an urban legend have a sequel. But not every day is an urban legend based on a true story. That's right. This has some pretty solid origins. Right. And it is an event that happened in 1950. That's even longer ago than 1960s. Right. Right. Holy cow. So this was 13-year-old Jeanette Crispin, and this was in Columbia, Missouri. Go Tigers. And she was babysitting three-year-old Gregory Romack on March 18th, 1950. The family left at 7.50... And dad, being a dutiful 50s husband, 
pulled out his shotgun and showed her how to load it and use it. <laughs> Just in case, you know. Who needs a home security system? I got a home security system right here. And he also instructed her, you know, if anyone ever comes knocking at the door, just flip the big bright porch light on so you can see who it is. This guy was like crossing his T's and dotting his I's. Yeah. Like he was not he was very, messing around. Definitely. You know, she places the child to bed and you know, things go and things happen. Things happen. Because at 1035, the police receive a phone call and they hear hysterical screaming and shouting. And a girl saying, come quick. And then the line goes dead. And so the test board at the telephone company was not staffed because it was late at night. So they couldn't trace the call. So they didn't know where it was coming from. They didn't know it was coming from inside the house. <laughs> at 1.30, the parents return home. What were they doing out till 1.30 in 1950? They were at a card game. Oh, okay. I thought they were at a honky tonk. <laughs> like my grandparents. <laughs> Your family. But anyway. And they came to the house. They found the porch light on. They found... So that means that someone, someone had come to the door? Maybe. And they found the doors unlocked. Oh, that's not good. Not at one thirty. And they also found a window broken open and the blinds open. Like broken open from the inside? From the outside. Okay, this is not boding well. Yes. And they also found Jeanette's body lying in a of blood. Okay, there's the kicker. You kind of buried yeah, that lead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leading into what they saw. So they okay. saw this, then this, then that. I say you're doing a walkthrough. Yeah, a walkthrough. Okay. So she was attacked and raped and killed, hit with a blunt object, oh and strangled baby. with an iron cord. Uh, wait, was Gregory okay? Yes. Okay. So the three-year-old is unharmed. Just in in bed. their bed, yeah. Okay. Good. Thank God for small favors. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. So they found several small puncture wounds on her head as well. They also found evidence of a struggle from the phone in the kitchen through the hallway into the living room. So she put up a fight. This scares the shit out of me. Like, I hate this story because it's true. It seems like the dad, Ed, it seems like Ed really did try to like set her up and give her a plan in case anything went wrong but it also seems like she did everything right you know she turned the porch light on she made the phone call she fought hard you know and it's like ah, nothing could stop it you know all right so like i said the you know the window was shattered from the outside yeah with a garden hose mm -hmm. but none of the furniture was disturbed around the window so he was a very dainty graceful burglar or he was trying to make it look like someone broke in so if he was going to the trouble of staging that that means that he was afraid that people would put together that he was a person that she knew which they did so they realized that this had to be an inside job he had familiarity with the house he knew where things were he knew how to get in he knew that she would be there uh, alone with the kid that's what i was gonna say like it's very telling that happened on a on a night that you would assume is a rare incident. Most nights it would be mom and dad home with a kid. Definitely. But it seems like someone definitely had to have prior knowledge that mom and dad were not going to be home at that time. So they did come up with a suspect. His name was Robert Mueller. And he was a friend of the Romax, the family, that she was babysitting for. And he'd been to the house several times. And Miss Romack later testified to a grand jury that she was really uncomfortable around him, that he'd, like, 
run his hand across our dress the two nights beforehand. This guy sounds like somebody I would not want to come to my house a few times. Yeah, I know. I'm kind of wondering why they were friends with him. But <laughs> And Romack also testified that Mueller had commented on Janet's mature development. Oh, no. And expressed opinions that she was a virgin. So he was a pervy perv perv. Oh, big time. He also stated that I might have done it and then forgotten it. Oh, how yeah. how... How lucky for you that you forgot it. And other damning evidence is that he always carried around a mechanical pencil with a punch end that could have made the puncture wounds that were in her head. So not like a little dainty lead pencil like you would get, like those packs of like 50 Bix that you get for three ninety nine, but like a heavy drafting pencil, like a, if you draw like a Stadler or something like that, I'm assuming. Yeah, so the police actually... You know, figuring out that it had to be an inside job, pretty good idea. But they really screwed it up after this. Oh, they police. picked him up. They took him to like someone's barn and like interrogated him. I'm not seeing the problem. They gave him a lie detector test. How would he do? He passed. Well, maybe he forgot it. <laughs> See, last episode. Yeah. He might have done it and then forgotten it. And that's why he passed the lie detector test. You exactly. see, everything checks out. And so he got out on that, that he was kind of like, falsely imprisoned i mean uh, his rights were violated yeah, his it, constitutional rights were i mean like i doubt they were like you may use this phone in this barn to call an attorney if you would like to have one yeah, and so he got off he skipped town and joined the air force oh he's thank you for your service yeah thank you <laughs> no one was ever arrested right no one was he was never arrested no right. one was ever arrested they never, you know, technically never solved the case. But everyone's kind of like, it was totally Robert Mueller character. Yeah. It was one of those things, like, everybody knew. I'm amazed that somebody didn't, like, lynch him. Well, he skipped town. Ah, okay, there we go. And you can see there's definitely some similarities between the urban legend and the story. And the idea that someone is left home alone to take care of a kid and receives some sort of call. Like, in this case, it's a physical, a physical call. call. Like, yeah. a, I, I, all I can think about is uh, Tennessee Williams. Right. Like, like a, a gentleman caller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like a calling card kind yeah. of thing. And that leads to her ultimate demise. Right. And it's interesting here because I think that the phone was a prominent feature. And her phone call out, even though it was an outgoing call, she does make the call to police that's cited in uh, later tellings of the story. The line apparently is cut. Is that correct? I think it's just like cut off, like, you know, he rips her away from it, rips the phone away or something like that. It plays on some really classic urban legend tropes of adolescence, female, moving to adulthood, that insecurity about this change and that she's not only left to fend for herself, but the other child. And even, I love these kind of statements by folklorists. They're my favorite. <laughs> her failure as a homemaker and mother. Oi. Of course, plays on the vulnerable female trope that urban legends love to talk about. Damsels in distress. Urban legends just are basically all about damsels in distress. Or men being naked in embarrassing places. True, true. We'll do that one once. No, no. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'll never, never say never. Yeah. <laughs> we said never about the Chihuahua story. Yeah, we did. And we ended up doing a dogs episode. But one, another great folklorist thing that only an academic would say... Okay, we need to make that a blog. Things only an academic would say. 
that uh, the killer is positioned upstairs uh-huh. above the female babysitter, uh-huh. signifying those traditional dominant roles of men in sexual and power relationships. Uh-huh. How do you feel about that? I actually feel like there's some truth to it. <laughs> I hate that I do. I hate that I do so much. I actually feel like there's something there because it doesn't necessarily mean that she is comfortable with it or accepting it. It means she's fighting against it and trying to take her place. But whatever, you can make it feminist if you want to. But you can, you, you can, you, you can you personally can make anything feminist. I can. You can make it a feminist struggle if you'd like. But I think that it's an interesting detail. It's consistent detail. It's a consistent detail. It's he's not always like, upstairs. Yeah, it's not. He's not in the room. He's not in the basement. He's not in the garage. He's not wherever. He's upstairs. And that would actually make more sense logistically if he were calling from somewhere that would impede her escape. But by him being upstairs and her being downstairs, she can walk out of the front door. Yeah, but she's responsible for those children. Right. So she would be, again, like, throwing off She could go get help. Yeah, yeah, I know. But, you know, like, in a story sense. Yeah. She'd be, like, abandoning her motherness. Her maternal role. No, motherness. (laughs) Okay, maternal role, motherness, same thing. But, you know, you mentioned the phone in the story earlier. And something else that's mentioned by Folklorus is that this is a consistent detail. The phone's always in it. Mm-hmm. And this has been kind of updated to modern times where mm-hmm. you get the call on the cell phone and it says unknown or mm-hmm. something like that. But it points out that even at that time, you know, 50 years ago, that the phone was a teenage girl's, I mean, this is, of course, very stereotype, a teenage girl's favorite way of social communication and still is now, mm-hmm. especially with the iPhones and things like that. So you're using this thing that is like tied to the teenage girl's psyche and using it to threaten them turning their allies against them i guess it's like a true irony Mm -hmm. (laughs) social communication that they are so invested in is used against them well i actually think it points out a further irony because the use of the telephone should in fact communicate distance right like it's it is not immediate. It's not the same as a man standing at the window tapping a knife on the window. It's not the same as a man like being in the room and physically threatening her. It causes her to dismiss the threat initially because it could be anyone. And it also does not um, communicate a sense of urgency about his physical location because it seems like he would have to be calling from somewhere else. It actually indicates distance. Oh, especially at the time. Right. There's like one phone line. They have actually looked into this. You can do this. <laughs> you can call from one line. You call, get a business signal, call again, something like that. And so it is possible. But yeah, you're right. Like you immediately you would think, oh, someone is calling me from their house. Or a payphone or whatever. Yeah. But they, you know, like especially at that point. What's a payphone? <laughs> a payphone is a device that existed back in yonder yesteryear that creepy people would make anonymous phone calls from and your errant cousin would call you collect from. They accepted quarters. The quarter. A physical form of currency used in the primordial ooze of mankind. Okay. So like 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So the phone, the phone is a huge, huge aspect of this story. Yes, it is. Let's look at the essential elements that are pretty much consistent. It's babysitting. So vulnerable, female, 
alone. It's never a guy that's been left with his younger brother. Right. Yeah, it never is. And the caller is inside the house with close proximity to the children. Upstairs. Upstairs. Being all patriarchal and whatnot. Can we coin like a new term? Like instead of like down with the patriarchy, be like, come downstairs. Yes, but I think you might run into Mad Woman in the attic territory, and I'm not certain that that's going to fly with all the pre-existing t-shirts. Oh, damn. Yeah. That was a million dollar idea. Yeah. Come downstairs where you belong. So the last big part of the story... Is the telephone. Now, I've been doing a little research on telephones... And crazy-ass motherfuckers that want to use them to intimidate people. Good. Yeah, which, when you Google that, not a lot comes up. Being is that I have lots and lots and lots of true crime knowledge just sitting around in my brain. Not good. Not good. I created my own typology. (laughs) Now, I know I say things like this a lot, but I actually did. Like, I sat down and looked at a ton of cases where telephones were used either to communicate to news outlets police officers, or the victims directly in cases where victims were ultimately murdered. And I kind of broke them down into classifications. All right, let's hear your classifications. Okay, so I'm just going to give you the list first, and then we can talk about the different kinds. So there's the prestige caller, the intimidation caller, oh, the confession caller, the memento caller, and the bait caller. Okay, so what are each of these types? The prestige caller often reaches out to both news outlets and police investigators. Now, in these cases, most often they have established some sort of persona or alternate identity for their criminal self. So they're Batman. Right. So they're anti-Batman. They're anti-Batman. I would say they're Joker, but we don't know who he is really. People always say in comic circles that Bruce Wayne is the mask and Batman is the real character. Yes. Whoever came up with that is brilliant. Right. And it has been used over and over again. Right. And everyone who says it acts like they made it up, but they didn't. So they have this burning desire to interact with a larger group of people using this persona because they feel that this persona is successful and accomplishes things that they cannot in their ordinary life. You will see a sharp split between their normal everyday presentation and this. Like these people live very much in society, uh, have jobs, have families, etc. And they find this dull after they've been able to act out their fantasies of whatever their fantasies are. So they're they're interacting as the persona. Yes. As the killer, as the Zodiac killer. Right. The Zodiac is a powerful example. He names himself. He reaches out to police. He reaches out to news media. He goes over his accomplishments. He makes me think of the ones that always like correct Oh, yeah. Like, you said that there were 12 shots and there were 11. No, that's not what I killed them with. It was this. Yeah. it's They're very persnickety. They want everyone to get it right, and they want to ensure the survival of their mythos. And what's interesting is, like, I found that killers that fall into this category normally choose their own monikers. Zodiac's one I think of. Yeah. And actually, the New York Zodiac was another. Or like, uh, oh, Son of Sam. Yes. And Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, yes. The original 
Like when you think serial killers, you think Jack. Jack the Ripper gave himself his name in a letter to newspapers back in the day during the middle of his murder spree. So while he was active, which is interesting. And then my like personal favorite in this category is Dennis Rader, who's just a every time I read about him, I'm like, that dude's bananas. Like, I don't know why that's my word. So who's that? What's his? Oh, it's a BTK. Which means... Bind, torture, kill. Oh, he came up with that. He did. He also wrote poetry and drew things. I'm sure they're lovely. Yeah. He like actually listed like a few suggestions to the media for what he should be known as. Like He wanted to be called the BTK Strangler, but they just like did away with the Strangler bit and just kept BTK, which is unfortunate, I guess, because he came so close. And then uh, let's talk about confession callers. So these are like people that have done a crime, like killed somebody or tortured somebody or whatever, and they call and confess anonymously. Yes. They reach out and they won't turn themselves in because they don't want to, but they want to be absolved of some bit of their guilt. And so they tell law enforcement, you have to catch me. And in that way, they're able to like, alleviate that feeling that they're responsible for their actions by passing the responsibility along to an agency. I guess passing the blame. Yeah. So they're like, oh, it's not my fault that I killed again. They didn't catch me, which is a great excuse. Prime example of this one is the weepy voice killer of Minnesota. Oh, I'm so going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah, it's a good one. And then back in the day, way back in the day is the lipstick killer who scrawled the message for God's sake, stop me before I kill again in lipstick on a wall above one of his victims. So the next type of collar killer, killer collar, what are we doing here? Killer collar, collar killer. Collar. Collar. Because they're not always killers. My list is mostly killers, (laughs) (laughs) but okay. So the next type of collar discuss is the intimidation collar. Yeah, so I think that seems kind of obvious, like they're intimidating the people they're calling. Right, and from what I've read, it seems like the people who do this interact directly with the victim's prior to a physical attack. It seems to be part of an escalation in stalking behavior, which is most commonly exhibited in former domestic partners, former lovers, even acquaintances who have sort of delusional relationships in their head with people. Usually acquaintances, they're usually known to the victim. And it's a means of exerting control by calling them and telling them, like, I see where you are, I know where you are, or threatening them or telling them that they know what they wore today or anything like that. They're just saying, like, you are powerless to stop me. I'm everywhere. And it creates anxiety and paranoia. And in regard to serial offenders, it's particularly interesting because it seems like the calls happen whenever there's an escalating step in their criminal behavior. So it's like a big red flag. Big red flag. Or whenever they're changing their MO. Another big red flag. Right, yeah. The one that comes to mind when I think of this type of call is the East Area Rapist. By his name, you might be able to infer that he was predominantly a rapist until he wasn't. He escalated from, from being like a peeping Tom to breaking and entering and stealing panties to raping women to... Killing people. Ooh, slippery slope. Slippery slope. Panty raid to killing people. Yeah, uh, it's it's not something that I would recommend. Panty raids are a gateway drug, Jacob. Which, random fact. Random fact, tell me. <laughs> something I saw, I don't know if this is true at all, because I did not go further in researching it. 
is that the panty raid was originally in Mizzou. Oh, because we researched about Columbia, Missouri, yes. and you saw the, some more fun facts about Columbia, Missouri. Yes, more disturbing fun facts about Columbia, Missouri. So the panty raid, okay. And Lord knows that's never escalated. Mm-mm. Just if you're wondering what the scariest phone call I've ever heard might be, it is the East Area Rapist phone call. Google that if you don't want to sleep tonight. Like, seriously. Like, it really upset me. <laughs> the next type of caller is the memento caller. Okay, so makes me think of mementos that serial killers keep. Right, like souvenirs, things like that. Right. And I think that that is kind of what these calls represent. They reach out to family after a murder or they reach out to the victim after an assault. Oh my God, that's so screwed up. I know, it's awful. And I think that it's like just a very selfish attempt to revisit the fantasy or extend the life of the thrill that they got from the criminal act. Sometimes they'll be very insistent about the special connection they have with the victim, even when speaking with their family and just say really creepy, screwed up shit. Or they'll like insist that the victim is still alive. And a lot of false ransom demands kind of fall into this category. Like when. Like, so the person's dead. Right. And they're just like want to keep that line of communication open. Like, I wouldn't say, like, the John Bonet letter falls in this category. It was not written after the fact and delivered weeks later or anything like that, but it's kind of that idea. Like, if you look at the themes in that letter, it's icky. And this can go on for years. And some examples of this are the Long Island serial killer, which, for all intents and purposes, looks to still be active and still unsolved. The killers of Dorothy Jane Scott and Sherry Smith. And their families were super harassed. I can't imagine what that was like. So disturbing. It's like, while this is still active and it still hurts so much, there's calling and reopening wounds and rubbing salt. And the last type of caller we're going to talk about, I promise I'm almost done with my thesis, is the bait caller. So are they like baiting victims? Yeah. Serial killers will commonly use ruses. Like I, when I think of ruses, I think of Bundy. He had a lot of varied ones, but like he would wear like a cast on his leg or dress like a police officer. Right, they like used that in Silence of the Lambs. Yes. The American Girl scene that every time I hear that Tom Petty song. <laughs> it makes me think of Silence of the Lambs and I want to just be happy. <laughs> and the time we were at the Tom Petty concert and that very large inebriated man kept singing American Girl to you. He was like, are you an American girl? He's wearing like a red Hawaiian shirt. He just like was so excited to be alive. His arms were all the way up in the air. That's how you know he's having a good time. But yeah, those are the two thoughts I have. Serial killers and random man in a Hawaiian shirt screaming that at me. And sometimes they get tangled up, but we won't talk about that. They use these interactions to manipulate victims into trusting them or feeling some kind of connection with them. It can be pity. It can be familiarity. Whatever it is, it's the way that they gain a victim's trust like online predators would fall into this category and then you have some people who would just make false promises like in the case of amber hunt which is technically still unsolved that occurred in ohio she received a call at her home from someone claiming to be from a local radio station saying that there was going to be a cheerleading competition at the mall and she had to get there in the next 15 minutes if she wanted to win could something be more stereotyped nope Amy Maholovic, of course, would fall in this category as well, and I believe we're going to talk about her in more detail soon. Okay, so we have several different types of callers. So we have the prestige caller, the confession caller, the intimidation callers, the memento callers, and the bait callers. Yeah. So I think it's a pretty good little thesis. 
Yeah, I think it was pretty thorough. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about some of these. Okay. Especially related to this kind of idea of the calls coming from in the house. Young, vulnerable girl. Ooh, pick me, pick me. You. Hi. I have a With case. With the hand raised. <laughs> that's waving it wildly. I have an example. Okay. So what, what type of caller is this? This is an intimidation caller. So this happened in 2007 in a small town in Washington State. There was a girl named Courtney Kuykendall, and she was 16 at the time. The first, like, hmm, something is not right, was when her phone randomly sent out a message to, like, 30 of her contacts that just said the word gay. Wow, that's mature. I know, right? And they're like, why did you say that? And she's like, I didn't say that. And they're like, well, it came from your number. And she's like, I didn't send a mass text that just said gay to 30 of my contacts. Come on, I'm 16. I don't really think they were jumping to unreasonable conclusions, but what do I know? And then after that, she started getting calls from a number that appeared as restricted on her caller ID. A man, at first, using a raspy voice, would say, I'm going to murder you. I hate you. Things of that nature. And the calls would come in at all hours of the night. And it stopped being just her phone and started coming to her parents' phones and siblings' phones and her neighbor's phone and her friend's phone. And it's not always the same voice. Like they said, sometimes it sounded like a woman and sometimes it sounded like a different man. But the sentiments were pretty universal and the number always appeared as restricted. So did she have some creepy stalker guy? Ex-boyfriend? She doesn't know who it would be. She cannot... Imagine that there's someone in her life who would have the technical knowledge to do all of the things that this caller eventually did. What else did he do? Well, he would do things like send them voicemails that were recordings of private conversations they'd been having moments earlier. Or like after they went to the police about these calls, he sent a message saying, don't go to the cops and played the recording of the meeting that they had just had with a detective oh my gosh that's scary i know and he would tell them what they were wearing it would not just happen when they were in their home either like the mother says once they were out hiking in the middle of the woods and they got a call from the restricted number describing what all of them were wearing and saying that he was going to kill them while they were all out in the woods god that's creepy it's incredibly creepy he can describe with accuracy like what everyone in the house is wearing and what they're all doing and send them recordings of themselves and all of this stuff. And he can activate, apparently, the phones when they're turned off. They'll, what? Yeah, they'll switch back on. What? And the ringtones will have changed without them changing them. So I'm guessing they called the police. They have called the police. Police have no idea what's going on. Oh, what did they say about the phones turning on and all that? Well, they kind of thought it was a hoax for a while. And people still debate that. But it would be incredibly elaborate. And it would be so malicious at this point because they're reasonable, rational people who have to admit that there's a chance that this is a hoax. The parents were like, "Okay, kids, everybody, give me your phones. We're going to lock them up and we're going to see if this keeps happening. And with the phones locked up, the calls like to neighbors and people who still had access to phones continued. So it's definitely not anyone in the family. Right. And they have changed carriers and changed physical cell phones multiple times. And the mom remarked that when she covered 
the cameras on her cell phone with little pieces of business card, they stopped being able to describe the scenes. So he was activating the camera. Yeah, and apparently the microphone as well. Which you hear about people doing on computers as well. Yeah. It's very disturbing because like my friend's light, like the Mac used to have a little light mm-hmm. that would show when the camera was on. His light was always on. <laughs> so he covered it. I don't blame him. I'm kind of thinking about covering all of my things. But what's really interesting is that a representative with Sprint said that he was unaware of any technology that would allow this sort of activity. So you can assume this is some sort of like hacker activity. Right. But you have to wonder if it was anonymously chosen to just screw with somebody or if they knew them. I mean, it seems so targeted. How could, I mean, what do I know? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just somebody. So when they did trace the call, here's the kicker. Here's the big tie-in. Are you ready? I'm so ready. It looked like it was all coming from Courtney's number. Like all the calls, all the text messages, everything. So the call was coming from inside the house. Inside the phone. Oh, shit. I know. (laughs) Apparently, this can be achieved with a hacking technique called spoofing. And I am not encouraging any of you listeners to do this to anyone. I will not be happy when I read about this in a few months. And I am not a reasonable insanity defense just yet. Just yet. Just yet. They theorized that pretty much everything that was done to the Kuykendall family could have been accomplished using simple hacks and spyware if the killer ever had physical access to Courtney's original phone to install it. Ah, so that makes you think... Someone she knew Mm -hmm. had access, someone maybe at school or something. Yeah, and she would get the same calls about school, and she would get, like, texts with her school schedule in them. It just never stopped. And I actually can't find anything about the resolution of this case. Like, I'm having a hard time finding anything other than the initial media frenzy when it first came out in 2007. It's hard to find any updates. So if anybody knows whatever happened to the Kuykendalls, you can uh, feel free to call the Just a Story hotline and not leave a heavy breathing message. Please don't. (laughs) Or do. (laughs) So definitely an example of an intimidation caller. Without a doubt. And so one of my favorite, can you have a favorite of your list, of your thesis, is the confession caller. Oh, Yes, you can have a favorite. Absolutely. If you're twisted gallows humor people that we are. I love that one because it's so, it just reminds me of Catholic guilt so much. Well, I just it's so interesting because they're just like trying to push the blame on somebody else for their really sick, twisted problems. Mm-hmm. And it also always equates to some really interesting 911 calls. Which, thank God, those are public domain. Like, is anyone else really stoked that that's true? Because I am. So the one we're going to talk about today is the weepy-voiced killer. Which, by the way, he is not in a prestige caller killer list because no one would have ever chosen that moniker. Right off the bat, I can tell you just by his name. Worst moniker ever. I really think it might be. All this happened in Minnesota in the 80s. Well, this is about all that happened in Minnesota in the 80s, but continue. So on New Year's Eve 1980, Karen Potak was returning home from a New Year's Eve party. As you do. So she was attacked with a tire iron and raped. 
Oh, my God. She actually didn't die. She was a severe brain trauma. Good for you, Karen. I mean, not your severe brain trauma, but, like, good job. Because, I mean, it's, like, the middle of winter in Minnesota. God. And so at 3 a.m. that morning, the police received a phone call. You don't say. And it said, in a very weepy voice, Mm -hmm. just hurry. She's lying on the ground in the back by the railroad tracks, by the engine room. Hurry. I'm not going to do the weepy voice. I'm sorry. Do you want me to do it? No, but you should Google it. Because it's quite entertaining. If you are a sick, twisted person like we are. So, of course, this struck a lot of people's interest. They listened to his directions. They found her. She was rushed to the hospital. Like I said, she did survive. Is she, like, did she have lasting brain injuries? Yes, yes. Okay. So she was unable to identify the killer or tell anything about what happened. Oh, my God. Poor baby. So a little while later, on June 3rd, 1981, Kimberly Compton was attacked and killed. The police received a phone call at this time. No. Saying, God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed someone with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. They found the body, and she had 61 puncture wounds that were most likely with an ice pick. So the story checks out. Yeah, and this was also like a kind of classic story. She'd just come from a small town, graduated oh, high school. Babe. The day she got into town, this was all in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Okay. The day she got into town, she put her bags in the bus locker and went across the street to the Greasy Spoon. Oh, honey. Where she was picked up. And she so, just didn't know any better. That's, know, that's really sad. small town, like sweet girl, and here along comes Mr. Weepy. And she's like, any man that talks like that can't be a threat and gets in the car with him. And so the police even received another call around this time saying, Don't talk. Just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I don't know why I had to stab her. I'm so upset about it. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Holy cow. And all I can think when I hear this is this guy is like destroying his insanity defense. And I know that you'd think the opposite. But he is so clearly communicating that he knows right from wrong that he's not got a legal leg to stand on. It's done at this point. No, you've got recorded evidence. This guy knows what he's doing, knows it's wrong, keeps doing it, could turn himself in at any time. But won't because it's not his responsibility. You see, he's put that off on the police. Exactly. And so on August 6th of 1982, Barbara Simmons was killed. And two days later, the police received a phone call. Of course they did. Please don't talk. Just listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. I'm never going to make it to heaven. Self-awareness is a good thing. By this time, they started to have a suspect. The right one? It's a man named Paul Michael Stefani. Paul Stefani, yeah. They start to put him under surveillance. He suddenly starts to become active. They're very worried, as they should be. Become active as in... Like he gets in his car to leave and drive around, which is not his norm. Oh, so he's like going out hunting? Exactly. And he loses the tail. Oh my god. And he heads over to the red light district. Oh, come on. Like, okay. And on August 21st, 1982, he picked up 21-year-old Denise William, a sex worker. He picked her up to do things one does with a sex worker. For a date. 
And they did. And after he offers to give her a ride to her place, mm-hmm. and they're driving along, and he says he's taking the scenic route. That's 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 never a good sign. But hey, we have this information, so I'm feeling kind of hopeful. So he pulls over, and he takes a screwdriver and begins to stab her. And as I'm a, feeling less hopeful. Yeah, well, as a street smart sex worker, she grabs a tab bottle that was down at the bottom of the car. Tab? Yeah, that's what no. she said. I watched the interview, and she starts to beat the shit out of him with You it. get it. You get it, girl. And actually, a local man that lived nearby comes down to help. This is not a Kitty Genevieve story. <laughs> and scares him off. You get it, local man who came down to help. You're heroes. <laughs> and so later. Wait, no, mm-hmm. no, wait, let me let me guess. Can I guess? Does what? he call 911 and be like, I got hurt? Yes. No. <laughs> he loves 911. He has on speed dial. Yeah, he calls and he says, I'm all cut up. I got beat up. I'm bleeding. And you can hear on the 911 call, it's the weepy voice killer. It sounds the exact same. So, like, anytime he's feeling anxious, his voice just goes up three octaves at this yeah, point? Yeah, because if you hear his, like, interviews from prison, they don't sound like that. Mm-hmm. Like, he has just kind of a, a normal voice. I mean, whatever a normal voice is, but it's not this... With a Minnesota <laughs> accent? Yeah. Oh, my God, that's so disconcerting. Like, to me, that's, like, you should just be friendly by virtue of being a Minnesotan. I can't handle the idea that there are mean Minnesotans. <laughs> Hello, all of our Minnesotan listeners. So, please quickly connect the dots. They really, they knew it was him, like, when he called saying he was hurt. Yeah, well, you know, whenever some kind of incident like that happens, the police are informed. Okay. And so, that, yeah, they put all the dots together. Holy cow. They're able to listen cow. to all the voices. And they all sound the same. They do voice analysis on it, of course, and things like that. Same guy. And he's arrested. And he even admits to one other death of Kathy Greening, which would have been his second death in chronological order. Yeah, I thought that was a really big gap. Yeah. I thought that was unusual. Yeah, he didn't call about that one. And he drowned her. One thing I find so weird about this guy is how often he switches MO up, huh? Well, he has a similar mode, but like the way he kills people is different. Usually, they don't deviate much. Although, Bundy drowned a couple. It's hard to say. I, I think guess. it's, it's kind of opportunistic. I think that for his personal psychology, it actually makes sense now that I'm thinking about it more. Because like, he has to almost think it's an accident. Yeah, because he'll say like in the interviews about the company. He's like, I met her at the restaurant. And you know, I was just going to drive around and show her what the time was like and things to tell her parents about. And I didn't have any plans to hurt her at the time. Yeah, he has to believe it's an accident. Yes. That's incredible. So that's maybe why he switches his MO up so often is because he has to convince himself he's not planning it. Right, but he's always going to call and confess. And it's always the police's fault. It's not his. If they would just catch him. Right, so he's acting out his compulsion in ways that avoid personal responsibility. Right, so he was technically, I think it was the first one, Karen Potek, that he was... Like, tried for and, like, went to jail for, like, 40 years or whatever. And then he eventually, whenever he found out he had melanoma and had less than a year to live, admitted to everything. Good. I can't believe he held out his confession for that long. I mean, he just seems like a guy who likes to talk. And you can watch his interviews online. I have not done this. It surprises me. Like, I've not sat down and watched them all. So, a great example of another caller and the... 
confessions that they have. I mean, it's a good example of a different type of collar, but it's not you know, not as related to our babysitting story. No, it's just like when you think of killers who make calls, you can't not talk about the weepy voice killer. Yeah, it's too good. I mean, do you have, but do you have one that ties in a little better? I do, and it's a kind of sad one. Like these have not been sad. Oh, like that guy got caught. Nobody died with the Kuiken dolls. So I feel like... Yes, they were just tortured psychologically. I'm not advocating it. <laughs> so this case involves a young girl named Amy Mihaljevic. And she was 10 years old in 1989. She lived in a town called Bay Village, Ohio. And she was a latchkey kid. Yeah, I mean, like everybody was a latchkey kid then. I mean, it was the 80s. We did not realize the, the horrors of the world yet, apparently. It was before the internet, and maybe we just, like, didn't want to know. <laughs> she started getting these phone calls from a man named Frank. And apparently Frank told her that he was her mother's co-worker. So automatically he's, like, an adult who is to be trusted. Right. Connected to the parents. Mm-hmm. Gives her a good backstory. He's like, well, I'm supposed to call and check in on you. Thanks, Frank. And everything was great. The end. <laughs> Just kidding. Ironically or disturbingly, other girls in the area had been getting calls that were similar to those that Amy was getting around the same time. Like he would tell the other girls, and like he told Amy, he would say things like he wanted to take them shopping for presents for their parents. And I think that there is something so completely disturbing about using a child's love and affection for their parents in order to manipulate them. Oh, yeah. It's like, so disturbing. It's not even like, I'm going to buy you a present. It's like, we're going to do something nice for your mom. So you even said something about her mom like getting a promotion. Right, which was on point because her mom had just recently gotten a new job. So it gives some like personal information. Mm -hmm. makes, even though it's kind of one of those like... If you're 10, I don't think you're yeah. making a big distinction. No, but like it provides that a little more trust. Right. So he's established himself as a trustworthy adult who knows her parents, which would make it okay for her to talk to him. He's expressing interest in her at a time where she's probably feeling a little lonely. You know, her mom had just recently gone back to work and they just recently come to the area. So she's home alone and not interacting with her specified adults. So she's a little bit vulnerable to this in a way that maybe some of the other girls who were like, uh, frankly, my Frank, I don't give a damn and hung up on him. But she's a little bit vulnerable in a way they're not. So he tells Amy that they're going to go get a present for her mom to congratulate her on her promotion. And he was going to give her $45 to spend. Holy cow. Yeah. Like, I would take $45. I might show up at the mall for $45, and that's in 2016 money. So Amy decides that she's going to go and meet him, and she doesn't tell her parents because he tells her not to tell her parents, so it'll be a surprise. But she does mention it to a couple of friends, and her brother actually overhears her kind of relaying the information to a friend. So there isn't, like, an established trail. So she goes to the mall on October 27th, and the name of the mall is the Bay Square Shopping Center. And when her mom gets home at 5.30, Amy's nowhere to be found. A massive hunt for Amy is started. They talk to witnesses at the shopping center. They get some composites drawn up. They look a lot like Anthony Perkins. They really do, especially the mouth. Like, after you said that, I was like, I just drew him. You're exactly right. And, you know, the whole city, it's a pretty small community. 
in a pretty exclusive community, is just thrown into turmoil while she's missing. But unfortunately, four months later, there's a jogger. A white female jogger? Yeah. If you're jogging, you're either going to be a body or find a body. These are the rules. Those are the options. So there's a jogger. She comes across something in a field and doesn't know what it is. She probably thinks it's a mannequin because that is another prerequisite of any true crime story. I just think of when I'm jogging. Yeah. And if I were to see, like she saw something wrapped in a green fabric. I can't imagine going, hmm. That's why it's never a male jogger who finds it. Poke (laughs) it. Let me poke the green mask. No, but that's why it's always a female jogger that finds it. Because I don't think men would go unwrap the green fabric. I don't know why that is, but it seems to be a very gendered difference. But this is about four months later, and she sees the green fabric, and she goes to investigate and finds the remains of a white female child who looks to be aged around 10. And this site is about 50 miles away from the original site where she was abducted. Forensic analysis and autopsy, they're able to determine that the 10-year-old girl that the jogger found is Amy Maholovic and that she was stabbed to death. And it looks like that was done fairly soon after her abduction, which I'm really glad she wasn't kept for four months and then stabbed. Yeah, I don't think there's a positive anywhere. I uh, just like... (laughs) Keep trying. Oh, God. So this is an example of a young, vulnerable girl at home by herself... Right. And receives a phone call mm-hmm. and ultimately leads to her demise. Yes. And, and it's definitely a bait call. It's definitely a bait call. And it's definitely, you can even, if you want to draw out themes of like taking on too much like domestic responsibility too early and like the conflicts between, you know, adolescence, childhood and adulthood and trying to find your role in the world. If you want to draw that in, you really can. And it's also sort of an abuse of authority. But, I mean, I I really think you can see some reflections of the urban legend in this very unfortunate true story. The killer's still never been caught. No, never been found. Okay, so with our original urban legend, our creepy caller upstairs that's maybe possibly killed the children or going to kill the children, maybe going to kill the babysitter. Maybe just the kids having fun. Yes. Let's just go with... Creepy dude. Yeah, let's stick with the original telling. And so he's calling this babysitter. Mm -hmm. Where would you say he fits in with your newly invented and patented thesis on caller? Well, first of all, John Douglas, you may get in contact with me anytime you're feeling up to it. Roy Hazelwood, if you've got my number. Who are these people? Oh, they're BAU people. They're going to behavioral analysis unit. You like just think you're like cool using acronyms? Are you trying to be cool like a doctor? I'm not trying to be cool like a doctor. I can never remember what it stands for until I say the acronym. <laughs> it's, okay, so where's this guy fit in? Ms. Uh, I didn't finish saying what I was going to say. If you want to call me, I will gladly send you my notes and you can use this in your future investigations. But using my newly created rubric and classification system, I believe that the man upstairs is an intimidation caller. Okay, why, why is that? I believe he exhibits stalking behavior. As we were talking about in the real case of Janet Chrisman, for him to know that she is alone there, he has to have been following her. You know, it can't be happenstance that he's on, in the house on this night. So he has to have prior knowledge, which indicates a pattern. And the escalation from the purely 
observational phase of stalking to the interaction phase of stalking makes sense here. And he's also trying to induce anxiety and make her fearful. And he's kind of abusing her authority by threatening the children. He is threatening her newfound position uh, as the female head of household in this instance. Yeah, I think that that is most likely. Most likely. I mean, you could definitely see some aspects with the bait caller, too. Yeah, if he's, like, trying to lure her upstairs. Yeah, kind of manipulating her. Yeah. Kind of using his power over her. Have you checked the children is very baity. Because yes. it's like, if you come upstairs. Are you fulfilling your motherly role? And it, like, I mean, I really do think it comes down to, like, come up here where I am so I can stab you. But he wants to, like, use that ruse. Because like, he can just come down and do it. But he's playing the game. Yeah. He's baiting her he wants to hold power over her oh ooh, he might also have a little sousant of confession killer if he's calling after he kills the children yes and he's also making her responsible oh yeah you're right you're right i did not think of that until you, what you just said so yeah. yeah he's kind of saying well you didn't check the children this is your fault they could be dead he's making her interact with him and like drawing her he's making her responsible for her own fate when we're trying to draw her upstairs, like if you come up here where I am, it's not my fault. So maybe he's just kind of like an archetypical mess. Maybe he's just like a little bit of everything. All right, so this kind of like communication with killers. They're interesting. And they are often helpful to officers, but not in the ways you'd think. Very rarely do you get accurate factual information that helps chase these killers down. It's more often the fact that they've licked an envelope or a piece of their hair has gotten caught on the back of a stamp or they're able to use voice analysis or like with Dennis Rader, <laughs> just to go back to that BTK, he um, was in communication with the head of the BTK task force. Cause of course he was. And he's like, I want to send you a floppy disk with some things on it, but there's no way you can trace that. Right? No, no, no. Yes, so he sends it to them and don't forget to put a return address on the envelope. Yes, basically. And so on the floppy disk, they're able to recover information about his church where he's a deacon. Of course he is. Yeah. And so they track him down using that. My other favorite fun fact about Dennis Rader is that when they're all sitting in the conference room, like during interrogations, etc., everyone's drinking out of disposable coffee cups. And he says, um, can you mark mine BTK? Because I don't want to drink after anyone. Oh, you dumbass piece of shit. Like, it just, it pains me. He infuriates me. I don't know why. I think the most interesting thing about communications from killers or criminals is not what they want to tell us, but what they tell us by accident. By the kind of call you receive, maybe you can unlock a little bit more about that person than they realize they're saying. Yeah, unlock a little bit more about the story. What they're saying might be fiction. But it's probably not just a story. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.